how we... Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my wisdom publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Expect to be treated by others whether we feel confident or anxious in social settings is established or largely deeply influenced by, of course, events of infancy and early childhood. We are a species like all mammals where early events have an inordinate influence on subsequent adult behavioral patterns. The brain is experience expectant, which means there's a certain age in all mammals where we learn a lot about ourselves, what to expect from others in the world. Unfortunately for us humans, it doesn't happen at, say, 25. Mm. Although I know 25-year-olds that it wouldn't be good if that was the age either, but... um, it is actually very early on in life that the brain expects to learn from human beings what we sh- will get. And that's generally uh, in all attachment uh, research, clinical research, longitudinal studies has been established to be between roughly nine months of age, yikes, and two years. That period is where the brain expects to learn about how other people will treat us. That doesn't mean that events in the rest of childhood are not also deeply influential, because they are. But there's a, you know, an inordinate uh, influence of that period. So babies are extremely reactive to attention ruptures. When a child, an infant, expects to get loving, appreciative attunement, which means someone who's looking at you with interest, uh, you are the most important thing to them at that moment, uh, and they lose it. They very, very quickly become distressed. If you want to see it, there's a famous experiment, uh, Ed Tronic's 1975 still face experiment, There's now videos online of recent versions of it, and it's a very simple experiment. A mother with a secure bond with her baby is looking at her child, uh, mirroring the child's expressions, and then on a cue, the mother's face goes blank and no longer has any um, kind, uh, uh, empathetic regard. And the babies move very quickly from anxious to negative affects to to states of distress. And if it's not repaired, if if a caregiver doesn't know how to repair those times when they've disconnected and the child becomes uh, locked into its sympathetic nervous system or to its dorsal dive, the, the sort of shutdown, the child will remain stuck in a painful, 
disconnected, vulnerable place. And those experiences are deeply embedded into our learning structures, the implicit memory structures of the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere is learning constantly about other people in infancy, and it's developing expectations of how other people will be. So a child that gets regular disconnections in childhood when it's emotional or vulnerable will grow up to be an adult that expects in vulnerable situations to be abandoned. And that those situations will become increasingly triggering and difficult. Now also, of course, studies show that bullying and peer shunning in early schooling scenarios also leave emotional wounds that create um, in adult life uh, fear-based defensive behaviors. So anytime a child feels bullied or shamed by an early group of peers can also leave an unconscious um, expectation that in front of other people we will not get love, we will be rejected. And of course the human species is deeply hardwired to connect. It's, we were in uh, the vast bulk of our ancestral history was comprised of hunter-gatherer collectives where we depended upon our tribal acceptance for our basic survival. So the worst thing that could happen to you throughout the, the first 190,000 out of 200,000 years of human <coughs> species would be to be rejected by a clan or by a small group. So we all live in fear of that, and of course today we're stuck in these legacy brains that are hardwired to fear rejection, even though today in your life you will see more people in one day than our ancestors would see in their entire lives. It doesn't matter if you come into you know, a subway car and somebody gives you a nasty look, you're never gonna see them again. Tell that to your brain. Your brain doesn't know that. Your brain is set up to go, holy shit, I'm about to be rejected. This is, this is, this is a threat. We are, our amygdalas are needlessly jumpy and so forth. Our, uh, and especially our right hemisphere, amygdala, the right amygdala is set to look for negative facial expressions, for ne- anything that looks like uh, um, a, uh, an attachment disturbance or uh, uh, any kind of cutting off. Because for our ancestral history, again, that would be a deeply threatening event. It would literally, if you were kicked out of your clan, or if other people in your clan didn't accept you, it was essentially a death sentence because you could not survive on your own. So we are deeply wired to fear, you know, doing what I'm doing now, sitting in front of a group of people blathering on, you know. Uh, so it's um, these patterns of uh, ruptures in attachment or ruptures in attunement are stored in an area of the right hemisphere. Again, your right hemisphere is doing all of your security and your attachment-based work. Um, uh, Shore argues it's the orbital frontal region. Some people say the temporal lobe. There's an unconscious region that stores all of your emotionally wounding experiences and looks around 
for situations that are reminiscent of times in the past where you were abandoned. And if anything's at all sim similar, it will activate what's called um, somatic markers or feelings. And, that's, and your stomach will get tight, your um, uh, heart will start racing, the vagal break, which slows your heartbeat and allows you to rest and digest, will uh, essentially be switched off. You'll go into what's known as the sympathetic nervous system, which is a hypervigilant state where you look for even more threats, you'll become, you'll feel unsafe. You'll have essentially a state of anxiety, a state of immediately needing to get away, or defensiveness, or a state of um, essentially wanting to do anything to stop the situation, right? So, uh, we are very easily triggered by nature. Our species is far too easily triggered. It's, again, due to the legacy. The problem is that feelings which convey this entire history of past rejections, past abandonments, past situations in a schoolyard where you wanted a group of people to accept you and like you, but they looked at you with this face of indifference or why are you coming to talk with us. These feelings arise in essentially one-tenth of a second. Why is that important? Well, it takes consciousness a half a second to arise after an experience. What that means is that your feelings about every interpersonal event are so fast that you experience your feelings as part of the the event itself. We cannot parse our reactions to an experience from the pure experience itself. So if somebody just gives you a curious look, they don't mean to be rejecting, but something about it reminds you of an older brother who looked at you with this kind of rejecting cold glance, and you start to feel tense in your body, and your, your breath suddenly has a startle catch, and then your breathing, breathing, rhythm of your breathing gets off and you're now in a fully sympathetic state of anxiety, you can't parse out the fact that that's a reaction and that they were simply giving you uh, an inscrutable look that might have not meant anything. To you, you will view that look as a threat and you will impugn onto them negative characteristics or... Uh, critical regards towards you. Because to you, the unconscious feelings in your body of, holy shit, uh, this person doesn't like me, they're rejecting me, is experienced at the exact same moment as the facial look. Your brain will just put them all together and you won't be able to parse them apart. The idea that we can experience the world without a filter, without understanding in any objective way is a complete um, a delusion, frankly. We are always not only experiencing some of the actual sensations that are out there, but we are also constantly experiencing our uh, reactions. And those reactions are based on earlier events. If we immediately like someone, 
it's not necessarily because they're giving us a warm face. It could be because unconsciously they remind us of a previous figure in our life that was kind to us. Or if you have anxious attachment, they could remind you of good old avoidant dad who wasn't available. And so, oh my God, he's the one. <laughs> you say, I hope you get it. Uh, there's no such thing as an objective appraisal of reality. The Buddha said that um, the mind constructs everything. There's nothing outside of the mind. There is no reality. And that has been borne out by contemporary neuropsychology. As one neuro, um, neurologist put it, our construction of the outside world is just close enough to the real thing that we don't bump into the furniture, but that's it. Most of our experience is based on projecting the past onto the present. And in fact, interestingly enough, when you came into this, when you come into this room and now what you see, only, this is amazing, only roughly 10% of what you see, you're actually seeing. There's about one-tenth of the sensory information that you experience actually going into the thalamus. The rest, your occipital lobe is creating the rest of this room entirely based on expectation from the past, and from previous times you've looked or from guessing. And if you actually look at one specific area, you'll find that if you focus on it, it actually looks slightly different than what you thought most of the time. So the, the mind essentially always experiences uh, uh, a world partially constructed by what's occurring, but partially based on expectations. And we are prone five with five to one ratios to remember uh, abandonments and wounding experiences over positive ones. That's due to our amygdalas. It's more important that we feel easily threatened to survive than we feel overly confident. So um, even despite the most secure caregiving, our brains are set up to neurocept danger and to activate um, uh, feelings of um, distress, anxiety, panic, uh, distance-seeking, avoidant coping, uh, doing anything we can to end the interaction or just to change the expression on someone's face. If you want to see it in action, uh, observe any two people talking and just look very closely and you'll notice if somebody immediately changes the subject it's because the expression on the other person's face suddenly became inscrutable critical distant <laughs> we are set up to immediately do anything we can to like like the babies with a still-faced mother, the baby will first say, hey, I'm here, I'm here. The baby will smile and say, like me, like me, like me, before it eventually becomes, if it fills with protest, it will start trying to hit the mother, and then it will just flop to its side. It's a disturbing video, to say the least. Being seen in the eye of the other, as Diana Foch, the great uh, psychologist, noted, is the most important experience for us from birth to death. That's where we cement security. 
That's where we, our attachment needs are fulfilled. That's where relationships are bonded. So the slightest sense of an emotional judgment, criticism, uh, Gottman in his studies of micro-expressions said, any subtle stonewalling where somebody starts pulling away their attention, any subtle symptoms of contempt or defensiveness or judgment can lead to the, per, the, per, the other person's sympathetic nervous system being engaged and fight or flight or anxiety symptoms to begin. So um, essentially being in the social landscape is a landscape of landmines for us. Every possible human interaction, especially novel interactions, are potentially triggering events that can subtly activate feelings varying from slight sense of uh, being unsafe to fully blown states of I have to leave this situation, I'm not liked, um, extreme misperceptions, misreadings of stimuli. So without self-soothing, we will very often gravitate to these legacy uh, regressive to a degree behaviors. Self-soothing allows us to be with feelings of insecurity or uh, that feeling of not necessarily knowing what's going on or that slight tinge of anxiety or that slight sense of uh, wanting to cut off a relationship or get away and to not react, to take our time to get more information, to wait and see if the glances we're getting are a permanent ongoing or if they're simply momentary events. And believe me, even micro expressions that are fleeting, if we don't have self-soothing, can trigger a state of essentially fight or flight. So the, long, the more we can self-soothe in interpersonal situations, especially dating, uh, get, talking in front of other people, meeting new people, any situation where we feel exposed or vulnerable, uh, where there's any potential of being criticized or evaluated, are the most likely experiences to activate uh, a needless drop from what's known as rest and digest, where you're comfortable, you're interested, you're available, you're, you're creative, you're engaged, to a sympathetic nervous state where suddenly we want to disconnect, we want to say whatever it takes to get this person to like me again, we'll completely abandon our true feelings, we'll say something we don't believe to get her or him or they to like us, and we agree to things in those situations that we are not capable of doing. Classically, in dates or in job interviews, people are prone, the moment they feel unsafe, to try to sell themselves and to try to get people to like them when they have no business of doing that in terms of their long-term health and well-being. So self-soothing is not just to put off uh, negative responses, but also to prevent us from saying things that sell ourselves short just to be liked immediately. That's, of course, a really um, dangerous pattern. 
So now I'm going to jump into the things we want to do, and then in our meditation, of course, we're going to practice some of them. That's the way I roll. I like to blather on, give a few tools, and then have us actually practice the tools. So hopefully you'll know how to do these in the future. So the first is, of course, and this sounds obvious, you've all heard this before, but it's worth repeating. Vedan Anusati, which is a early term for simply monitoring your feelings. The, again, the first way that you will know when you are shifting from rest and digest, patient, open, interested, connected, uh, interactive, relaxed, non-reactive, non, you know, non non-feeling uh, threatened, is that there will be a sudden uh, change in the vagal nerve cluster that runs down the face, the throat, chest. For some of us, we'll start to notice suddenly the belly gets tight. That's, for me, the, the key. And I can almost always tell when I'm in any kind of a, a interpersonal situation with a group where I don't feel necessarily heard or understood or seen. My first thing that happens is my, I literally feel the muscles of my abdomen start to tuck in. For others, it will be a certain catch in the breath, followed by a shallow in-breath, and we won't, the out-breaths will be very short, like that, you know. Uh, there will be, um, for some people, there will suddenly be a, a slight sensation of catch or tightness in the chest, or there might be the jaw locking or the muscles uh, in the back of the neck, which are also part of the vagal nerve or the the micro muscles around the eyes. So get to know yours. It's worthwhile when you are in a situation where you're feeling judged, abandoned, criticized, disliked, to scan your body and get to know where, from first more extreme settings, where it articulates itself. Then you can actually pay attention to this region and then, here's the key, you can actually start to deactivate reactive states by softening the belly, by opening up the chest, pulling back the shoulders, opening and relaxing the micro-muscles behind the eyes. That's why we maintain this front of the body uh, awareness, not just to note when we're triggered, but then to also note how to relax, how to deactivate it. Search for positive eye contact. And unfortunately, as I said, the right hemisphere is uh, attuned to look for threats. So if I had not enough experience talking and I felt vulnerable, unconsciously, my right hemisphere right now would be looking around for any sign of somebody looking at me negatively or you know, looking away or not interacting. So that I would be glued to that person. And that would re-trigger me and re and continually build up or escalate the feelings of abandonment, the feeling of not being safe. And I would work myself up into a feeling of, you know, not being uh, tuned to. And so what we don't want to do is allow our natural, the right hemisphere to guide. What this means, if you try to simply look, though, at positive expressions, that won't work either because your right hemisphere will keep saying, wait, 
there's somebody looking at me with a negative expression. So in pendulation, you look at the person you know who's in the room who might be looking at you with a negative expression or might be completely disinterested in you. And then you look to someone who's looking at you with a positive regard. And then you look back and you do this on a regular basis. What you're doing, therefore, is you're showing your right hemisphere that there are safe regards just as well as there are negative ones. And trying to avoid the negative look will not work because your right hemisphere will be very well aware there's somebody in a room who's not paying attention or who's looking at you with a critical face. So you want to pendulate back and forth. Look at the person, not you know, try to engage them unnecessarily, but just direct and then direct at people who are giving you the welcoming expression. That's a, another strategy that, that is used commonly in deactivating people is exteroception, which is to not just look at the triggering facial expression or the person that you feel is judging or is being aversive, but to, if they're the only one there, then look at times to other stimuli in the room that creates feelings of either safety or at least um, benign emotional settings. A classic in, uh, in trauma work, a classic practice is to ask somebody when they're starting to feel triggered to count all the red things or blue things in a room. And this is actually an ex excellent exercise that can be done when you're in a situation where you're feeling really uncomfortable. You look at the person, then you look up where's something blue. <laughs> Then you look back at them, where's something blue? Then you look back at them, where's something blue? What you're doing again is not trying to deny the existence of the threat, but you're reminding yourself that there's also safety signals or signals that don't make you feel, you know, threatened. Noting our emotional state, even Mentioning to myself, okay, right now I'm feeling anxious. Just acknowledging internally an affect switch has been shown to be inhibitory in the sense that it deactivates the emotion slightly. Why is that? Well, the emotional activation is right hemispheric, but the moment you actually label it, as Genlin and other psychologists showed, by labeling what you're feeling, you're actually now engaging your left hemisphere. So your left hemisphere is chronological. It knows you're now an adult. It doesn't feel as vulnerable. It has context. So it's saying to the vulnerable right hemisphere, which some people call the inner child, it's saying, okay, right now I get it. We're feeling anxious and that's okay. But it's allowing you to, it's allowing you to now say, okay, everything I'm experiencing is being filtered through anxiety. And that gives you the opportunity to distance yourself and to start the process of self-soothing. So in Genlin's work, focusing and in other therapies, simply acknowledging to yourself, I am anxious, I'm not feeling safe, I'm not feeling seen in this situation, I'm not feeling heard. Whatever the state, label it in your mind. 
Even better, and this is obviously the big ask, and most of you will say, well, fuck that, Josh, I'm not going to do that, <laughs> but uh, is to acknowledge the affect state to the people you're talking with. That immediately removes cognitive overload because what, nothing creates an even greater state of cognitive overload and sympathetic nervous system stress than trying to present an affect or a state of being that we're not actually feeling. So if, for instance, I was feeling nervous, if I tried to pretend that I'm feeling confident right now, that would totally suck. Because what I would have to do is monitor, is, it, is my body, is my facial expressions betraying the way I really feel? I'd have to look at all your facial expressions. Can Amanda see that I'm feeling anxious? Can she? Can she? You know, then I'd have to go back and forth. My brain is now working on three things. On the other hand, if I simply, if it was the case, I would I'd go in front of a group and saying, hey, speaking in public makes me anxious, then immediately I'm removing the cognitive overload. I no longer have to worry if you're seeing the way I feel, and I no longer need to monitor my affect because I've acknowledged the state. And I've essentially now challenged you to accept me rather than created the inner belief that the only way I'm acceptable is changing myself for you. So acknowledging an affect state is extremely healthy. Now, of course, uh, all sympathetic nervous systems switches when we go from a pleasant state to a threatened state. Uh, is maintained and integrated by a change in breathing patterns. The breath is the most influential marker of not only our uh, state of being, but it's also the most uh, influential in switching our state of being. It's a key marker. It's uh, something that is great. As the neuroscient neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux at the NYU Emotions Lab said, the only real sure way to change a, a brain state is through changing the way we breathe. That's the fastest process available to us. The breath of fear starts with a, a catch, and then it is maintained with quick inhalations. And that can be subtle. You're, you know, you're in a, you're meeting with a boss and suddenly you expect uh, a positive statement suddenly they say something critical or with a roommate suddenly they start to criticize you when you expect it just to be a, a calm conversation and what will happen is suddenly your or very quickly your breath will move into the sympathetic state of where the emphasis is on the in-breath if you want to switch yourself back to um, the uh, ventral parasympathetic, which is rest and digest, you're relaxed, you're confident, again, the exhalations have to be much longer than the inhalations. And that's the key. The exhalations are what really matters if you want to self-soothe. I, I found actually a, a study called Self-Regulation as a primary treatment for anxiety, and they, uh, by Jurath et al., 2015, and they concluded that the single most effective tool to deactivating anxiety and stress was changing the way you breathe. The interrelate this is in quotes, the interrelationship between respiration and emotions 
means that meditation and breathing techniques, rather than targeting neurotransmitters with medication, is the superior method to address the whole body changes that occur in stress and anxiety. Now, I don't agree that it should be medication or breathing, like it's a choice. If you're someone who benefits from an SSNI or, or a dopamine reuptake inhibitor or into any other form of uh, uh, psychopharmacology, that's great. Don't feel that the, if you're taking a medication that you're not being spiritual. That's far from the case. I've been helped by neurotransmitters. I think that they can be vital tools, but we shouldn't be making the choice, well, either it's medication or it's spirituality. We should be using every single fucking tool available to us to address whatever forms of distress are prevalent in our life. So the tool of, at first, deactivating is matching your exhalations, at least with your inhalation length. Never let your exhalations be shorter or be, you know, the thing that you don't feel. You're only aware of your inhalations. When you're in fear, it's like that. You, the in-breath has the emphasis and it's sharper. What we want is a, uh, a breath that's like, To deactivate means you have to uh, remove from your bloodstream what's known as glucocorticoids. Try to pronounce that. Uh, it's more commonly known as cortisol. Fortunately, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes. So there's no tool that will immediately deactivate. If you start to feel anxious or you start to feel like the tenseness, the nausea, the muscle grips in the back of your neck, you start to feel your eyes jumping about, you start to feel obsessive ideation where you start to feel, I'm not going to be able to do this, I'm not going to be able to survive, i got to get out of here, blah, blah, blah. Then, no matter what you do, it's going to take about 10 minutes. So it's 10 minutes of discomfort, but this will work. It's just a matter of continuing doing it. Long exhalations. Very often it can be done faster, but... Um, don't expect immediate results in the first few minutes. Bringing attention to the breath, rep, re, respiration slows, inhalations deepen. Another tool that engages the parasympathetic nervous system is what's called the sigh of relief. And this is used in a lot of polyvagal therapies. Simply uh, try it. In any social situation, you can probably sigh, and that will actually engage your parasympathetic nervous system. It will actually re-engage normal breathing faster than you can imagine. So a simple sigh is actually a very effective tool. And in the book, uh, Polyvagal and Therapy, I think by Deb Dana, if I recall, she makes a whole big uh, emphasis upon getting her patients to sigh when they're activated. So I, I believe that too. I, in my work in counseling, that's a constant uh, tool I go to. Studies show that in any way, keeping your shoulders tight, slouching, or contracting your chest, keeping your arms close to your body, 
tends to activate sympathetic nervous system and keeps you locked in it. The best posture in any interpersonal setting is arms spread wide. That's the, uh, that's the sort of confident, open, it's not man spreading, we're not talking about legs, we're talking about arms. We're just talking about keep your arms away from your side. Engages the vagal break, slows down your breathing, lets you know, because when people are unsafe, they naturally do this. They're trying to unconsciously protect themselves. If you're like this, you're sending a message to your limbic structure saying, I'm not safe, look at the way I'm sitting. Fuck it, nobody who's sitting like this is unsafe. Uh, Gallus and Spence in 2010, a, a wonderful study showed how much touch modulates emotions. Now, of course, uh, while the focus of the study was primarily on touch from another human being, like when you're, they showed that when somebody is about to get an injection or have a painful procedure, they experience less pain when somebody close to them is holding their hand. But we actually, literally, there's uh, more um, endorphins present when somebody you love is close to you, so you actually do feel less pain when you're around <laughs> someone's close. But if you want to do that yourself, what you can do in any stressful situation is take a hand and just let it fall heavily. Don't grab, but just let it fall heavily on your arm or back here especially, which engages the vagal break. This simple technique of feeling someone's hand on you, and you're not pushing, you're simply just allowing that warmth of another hand to be on you actually will switch, start the switch out of the, um, the, the dorsal dive or the sympathetic nervous. Touch has been shown to um, change the breathing cycle, change respiration, and actually lower heartbeat. So that's a key tool. And finally, last of all, before we actually do the meditation, Interestingly enough, any subtle form of a rhythmic, regular body movement actually is deactivating. The autonomic nervous system responds to changes in body orientation. In nursing homes with people with dementia, they actually find that people are far less, um, uh, they're much more calm, there's much less requests for attention, when patients are put in rocking chairs than when they're left to sit in chairs that don't move. Mm -hmm. A comfortable chair with a subtle rock to it actually activates that early state when you're being held in a mother's arm and it actually creates a sense of safety. So what this means in public is that if I was nervous, I would go, like that. I would move my head up and back with the in-breath and then down subtly with the out. And I would just create this subtle swaying or rocking sensation in my body. And if I did everything together, <laughs> it might look weird, but fuck it. It would, it would deactivate me pretty quickly. So going over some of the tools, uh, Searching for positive eye contact and pendulating back and forth. Exteroception, looking for safety cues in the environment. It could be simply something that's 
uh, blue or red or an open space or a door uh, and then pendulating back and forth from the person who's triggering to the uh, benign exteroceptive um, sensation or stimuli. Noting in your mind your emotional state, simply naming it allows you to actually begin the process of uh, addressing it. If you can acknowledge aloud your affect state, that's extremely beneficial. <laughs> the breath that of fear, we should try to as quickly as possible change to the breath of safety, which is the extended exhalation. Uh, avoiding slumped postures where our arms are close to our body, keeping your arms spread, your torso from being slouched, Resting, if you'd like, an arm somewhere on your neck or on your belly or on your heart or on your arm. And the subtle, if you like, rhythmic body rocking. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. My throat managed to <clears throat> stay somewhat available. So now we're actually going to put these into practice. I hope it was a somewhat interesting talk. And... Uh, <coughs> Reminding you at the end to put money in the basket or to contribute uh, through PayPal or uh, Venmo. And now let's close our eyes. I actually really, really enjoy meditating in loud rooms. <laughs> actually, it's a myth that in Asia, in Southeast Asia, people meditate in you know serene, quiet environments. They're actually generally uh, Buddhist temples are very loud places where the practitioners who are meditating are just sitting there amidst people chatting and talking. There's a lot going on. There's no sense of this sort of uh, being in a sort of perfect... I mean, the Buddha did talk about how on retreats it's good to find a secluded spot, but in this kind of practice, allowing the sounds that are happening into awareness is absolutely fine. You don't have to in any way try to remove sounds. They can actually anchor you. Anchors keep us grounded in the present moment. The only thing we want to avoid is uh, falling into thoughts that are com essentially comprised of content that we're creating entirely that's not present. So if you have a thought about <clears throat> how can I sit more comfortably? How can I change my breath to make it more uh, longer or more pleasant? That, those are fine thoughts and they shouldn't be avoided. But any essentially virtual reality where we start visualizing uh, situations from the past or the future, or we start working on plans, 
or we start rehashing unpleasant interactions or any of that, we, we just acknowledge and allow it to be in the background and we return first just to all the sounds, the, the music that's bleeding in from the apartment upstairs, Now bringing awareness to <coughs> internal sensations, just the constellation of feelings in the front of your body and any other ongoing physical sensations feelings of slight discomfort or comfort, feelings, uh, core emotions are felt in the front of the body where the vagal vagus nerve is, it runs down the face to the throat, to the chest, to the belly. So if you want to know what you're feeling at any moment, the core of your emotional stance, whether you're in a positive emotion or a negative, just note those, whether the muscles in the face are relaxed or tight, whether the jaw is, <coughs> the jaw is clenched, that's generally a sign of a negative affect state. If your jaw is relaxed, the eyes feel soft, the chest feels open, that's obviously a sign of a positive affect state. If your belly's tight, that can be a sign of, of course, a subtle sense of anxiety, fear. Your belly's really soft, pliant. That's a sign of safety. And of course, if your breath, your out-breath is really long and relaxed, that should keep you in rest and digest, approach state. So let's take a few breaths and address these core areas. Take a full... In breath through the nose and lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears. And then as you breathe out slowly, 
Rotate your shoulders back and drop them away from your body, opening up your chest. The big chest is what we want to cultivate. Take me or leave me as I am. There's nothing wrong with me. This is who I am. Second in-breath, in the nose, either pushing out your belly or holding it in really tight so that there's some sense of discomfort and then breathing out, softening the belly, state of ease, comfort, everything's okay. Not under any threat. Soft belly. Relaxed open chest. And for the third in-breath, squinch the muscles in the face, clench the jaw. Really ugly pinched little face, part of the brow, and then breathe out. Soften the muscles in the eyes. Unclench the jaw, unfurl the brow. All of these, by the way, these three areas, opening the chest, softening the belly, and relaxing the face, these are also self-soothing tools. So you could add that to our list. Now let's just sit for a while, just being with the breath, try to keep the breath in mind. Incline the breath without too much intervention towards a very relaxed, smooth, extended out breath. And just be here now. The sounds of the room, the lights flickering behind closed eyelids from the lights. The rhythm of the breath, ambient body sensations, and just keeping what the Buddha called a heedful eye out for any thought that tries to grab hold of you, pull you away from this moment when you can truly begin to substantially address healing in your life, well-being. And any time a thought does manage to pull you away, just acknowledge it. No impatience or self-criticism. It's totally normal and natural to stay present. I mean, normal and natural to struggle to stay present. It's not at all unusual to at times slip away. So every time you do catch that, you could regard it as a little experience of enlightenment. The Buddha called enlightenment simply waking up from our thoughts and delusions about the world and just returning to present experience. So when that happens, give yourself a nice, rewarding breath.
So at this point, I'd like you to bring to mind any challenging social experience you've either been avoiding or in the past have found difficult. It could be an experience in work that is trying or in interactions with roommates, certain people in social circle. Try to visualize an experience of being in this situation, the setting, and being in the presence of a facial expression that feels in some way negative. You're working with someone and they are not liking what you're doing. You're on a date and someone is not in any way getting your humor. Something is going amiss in the interpersonal connection. And then while you hold this image, scan the front of your body Noting if there's any even slight tension in the belly, tightening in the chest, knot in the throat. And just first start by asking yourself, how does this make me feel? And that might sound like an obvious question, but it could be upset, anxious, angry, frustrated. Find the right word. It's important to take a moment and find the right word to describe what emotion this state creates. When this happens, I feel what? Putting a feeling to a word begins to process. Then imagine while this person is still looking at you with a negative sort of judgmental appraisal, imagine someone else is present who's interested in you, in no way negative, and just imagine pendulating back from the negative glance to the positive, and then with the out breath and in breath, just moving back and forth, not hovering on the negative. The positive phase, the critical phase.
taking the full in-breath and then long exhalation, softening the key somatic markers of the belly and the chest, (coughs) softening belly and chest, unclenching jaw, just taking a moment to pull slightly your arms away from your body and take one arm and <coughs> place it on your belly or in the back of your neck or on your arm. And then very subtly, a nice inaudible sigh of relief. Mm. It's okay. Long exhalations, softening the eyes, softening the belly. And just stay with the visual, but now just not only allowing yourself to move to a pleasant phase, you can just visualize a sense of space and openness in the setting. And then rescan down the front of your body and see if any of the somatic markers have subtly relaxed. The chest feels a little warmer or more open. The belly feels less tight. Just relax into this feeling that Whatever state has been cultivated by adding some self-soothing tools into our experience. And in a moment I'll ring the bowl. Just Take your time returning to the visual stimuli around you and try to bring awareness of either the breath or the front of your body with you. The more you're aware of your body and breath, the more you can deactivate yourself. Ongoing mindfulness is key, as the Buddha put it, sati. The more you're aware of your body, the more you can Deactivate, fight, flight, freeze, triggers before they fully take hold. 